Today on Basic, we are joined by ESPN legend Dan Patrick. Keith and I, we would go down and do Sports Center at 11 o'clock. We never looked back. We tried to entertain each other. We wrote for each other. We did highlights for each other because if he reacted, the audience would react. Man, we were full of ourselves. We were on the cover of TV Guide. We were calling ourselves the big show. Management yelled at us. You will not call it the big show. You will say, this is SportsCenter. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Basic. I'm Doug Herzog, former TV executive, and this is SportsCenter. And I'm Jen Chaney, a TV critic for Vulture and New York Magazine, and this is most definitely not SportsCenter because you are listening to Basic. Yeah, I just always wanted to do that. So you are listening to Basic, and we're the official podcast of the unofficial history of Basic Cable Television. We talk about everything here, from MTV to Mad Men. We explore the shows, networks, personalities, and milestone moments that define TV in the glorious era of Basic Cable. Today's guest is former ESPN Sports Center host Dan Patrick. In today's world of instant information, it's hard to remember a time where you had to watch Sports Center to get the scores and see the highlights and get post-game reactions from your favorite players. Back then, Dan Patrick and his co-host Keith Oberman were literally must-see TV. They were huge stars. The Dan Patrick Show is currently heard daily throughout the country on syndicated radio. And he contributes to NBC's football coverage. But today we get in the Wayback Machine to talk about the glory days of ESPN and the big show. Welcome, Dan Patrick. Dan Patrick, welcome to Basic. Uh, we usually start off by asking um, our guests, do you remember when you first got cable television? I remember an impactful moment when we were first getting cable TV, and it was in college. And uh, we had to decide between heat and cable in our off-campus <laughs> house at the University of Dayton. And we opted for cable. And we would have sleeping bags in the living room and we would watch cable TV. That's when you would slide it up and down on the numbers. Right. And, uh, you know, changing channels. And then, you know, it, it was by accident, not by design, that when we would have girls come over they of course had to get in the sleeping bag to watch cable tv with us so it was kind of a uh, a two-pronged attack there that we got to watch cable and also had companionship there but that's a bold choice because in those days cable didn't really offer much in, in terms of channels so you gave up heat probably for just a handful of channels and some and some scrambled porn i'm guessing well it was worth it because i go back and and we wanted to have espn that was really important. And, they, you know, there were a couple of, you know, peripheral cable channels where you thought, all right, I'll give this a shot. But for the most part, it was to get more than just the three channels we grew up with and that you got cable. And, and, and it was at that moment where I started thinking about what I wanted to do with my career. And by watching ESPN, you know, I sort of got, I, I think, a little bit more focused of what I wanted to do with my, uh, my career. Actually, that's a perfect segue because the, the next thing I was going to ask you is, I know you were an athlete, um, both in high school and college, um, believe you played basketball. So when did you think to yourself, you know, I'm not going to necessarily go pro, maybe I'm going to do something else sports related with my life. I'm still waiting to go pro. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've never given up that hope. Um I think after my third or fourth knee surgery that I realized that I needed to start thinking about a future and I didn't have a plan B. You know, when people say, well, if you weren't a sportscaster, what would you have done? I, I don't know what I would have done, but I, I was so focused on knowing sports, sports trivia, 
I didn't know anything about the business at all. I was so naive. I just thought if you knew the most about sports, then you got a job. I didn't factor in, do you look good enough to be on camera? So, you know, I have my hair parted down the middle. I've got acne. I weigh about 160 pounds. I'm 6'3". Not exactly, you know, the leading man presence that you would have if you're going to do local sports. And actually, I think I lost a job at Channel 2 in Dayton, Ohio, because of how I looked or how I didn't look, because the guy who got the job was blonde hair, blue eyes. And I didn't understand when you when you look at a news team, it's sort of balanced out that you have the anchor man, you may have the co-anchor, maybe a goofy weather guy, and then the sports guy, and somehow they're interchangeable. I didn't look at it that way. I just thought, well, I knew more sports than Ken did. And then, you know, it's one of those where you go, I wonder why he got the job. And then I had a friend <laughs> who goes, he might, it was a, a, a female. She goes, he might be a little better looking than you, but he doesn't know more sports than you. And it really hit me. It's like, oh my God, I never thought about the cosmetic part of the business. And that was a wake up call. Speaking of blondes, and this may be of interest to only three or four of our listeners, um, you versus Craig Kilborn, one-on-one basketball, who wins? Kilborn's good. <laughs> he was really good. Got the height advantage. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wouldn't take him lightly. Let's put it that way. I mean, uh, I, you got to kill me. You got to, I, I'm going to fight you. I don't care. Kilborn's a little more stylistic and prettier in his performance. Like he wants style points. I just want real points. And that's where I would probably win. I, it, whatever it would take to win, I would do so. But Craig Kilborn can absolutely play. All right. So if the game didn't have a referee, you would definitely win. Even with the referee. Oh, even with the referee, okay. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I mean, Craig looked good playing basketball. I just wanted to win. I didn't care how I looked. <laughs> there you go. So your your career in, in broadcasting actually started way back at CNA. Were you there day one? No. I, I lost out on the job at Channel 2 in Dayton, Ohio. And I think I was 26 at the time, maybe 27. So I'm, I'm starting to get up there in age where if you don't get a job soon in TV, you're not going to get a job. And I was devastated. We had a celebration party planned at a, at a pub in Dayton, Ohio, and uh, I didn't get the job. I was just devastated. And I thought, you know what? I got to get out of Dayton, Ohio for a week. And, and my ex-girlfriend lived in Atlanta. She said, why don't you come down to Atlanta? CNN's hiring. And I go, I can't get a job in Dayton, Ohio. I certainly can't get a job at CNN. Went down to Atlanta, had a nice time, got away from Dayton. And then the last day I was there, I had my resume tape. And I begrudgingly went into CNN. Once again, I'm so naive. I go in and I say to the receptionist, yeah, uh, who's the head of sports at CNN? I I haven't even done any research, nothing. (laughs) And I go, who's the head of sports? And, and she goes, well, Bill McPhail is. I said, can I talk to him? She goes, well, who are you? And I introduced myself. And I said, you know, I got this tape and I, uh, you know, I was going to drop it off. And she goes, well, hold on. And then she says, calls back to the sports department at CNN, goes, yeah. Okay, just have him drop off the tape. Okay, all right. Uh, just drop off the tape and then somebody will get back to you. And I said, well, look, I'm going back to Ohio. Like, this afternoon, I, I won't be able to be here, not knowing that, that they could actually call you on the phone and say, hey, we want you to come back. 
So she calls back and talked to Bill McPhail, legendary sports guy. And Bill happened to be from Ohio. He said, have him come back. Went back, introduced myself. He put my tape in. He watched three and a half minutes. It was only five minutes long. And the longer he watched, the more I realized I might actually get a job. He popped the tape and he said, when can you start? And I said, I, I guess I got to give two weeks notice to the radio station I work for in Dayton. And he goes, make it a week. So I, I went back, packed up and, and moved to Atlanta and I did headline sports. So I wasn't even on camera, but I was still in the building. You know, I was at CNN and it was such an exciting time. But I honestly believe if he wasn't from Ohio, he wouldn't have invited me back and gave me that opportunity. And, and I, I tell my broadcast students all the time, there's luck, but be ready. Be ready if you get the moment. That was the, that, maybe that was my only chance, but I was ready for it in some strange fashion, as naive as I was. Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So I'm, I'm curious for people who watch CNN now, where there is not a dedicated sports, you know, segment of every show, sometimes they'll cover a sports story, but not very often. How did the sports department or just that type of coverage work at that time? You know, there, there was a, a news element to how we covered sports. And then we had a show every single night. We would do cut-ins as well. Let's say five o'clock, 520 uh, on uh, CNN 
Lou Waters would be the uh, the anchor, and you'd come in and you'd do three minutes of sports. And and so you had these sort of uh, a local news uh, segment as far as the length, three minutes, three and a half minutes, and then you were done. But the approach was still as journalist. It, mm-hmm. it really helped me. It just helped me know how to go after a story, develop sources, be able to write, all those things. And I was in the embryonic stages of my career, but I was learning from people. Nick Charles, uh, the late Nick Charles, was such a great writer. He he wrote vividly. He wrote to picture. And I remember Fred Hickman was the co-anchor with him. And Fred taught me about having fun. And don't be afraid to show your personality. These are all things you're sort of absorbing by proxy. But the approach was we're a sports department in an all-news network. But we held ourselves in high regard because we were doing it better than ESPN was. Mm -hmm. Nick and Fred were kind of an early version of Dan and Keith. No, they were, they were pretty big deal on cable TV, right? Yes, they were. They were, they were very good because you just wouldn't expect them to be paired together, but they were paired together and they evened each other out. And later when I started working with Keith Oberman, we leveled each other out. You probably couldn't take, one of us for an hour, but you could take both of us for an hour. And that was sort of my approach is kind of find your high water mark with who you're co-anchoring with, play to their strengths as well. And uh, I think that helped me a lot. You were in your infancy of your career, but so was CNN. What was it like back there in Atlanta in those days? There was so much fun. It was so young and it just felt like you had an opportunity to do some things. I'm only there six months, and Keith Oberman left as the New York reporter at CNN. I was in Atlanta doing headline sports, occasionally doing a cut-in on camera, and I remember Bill McPhail said, have you ever been to New York? And I said, absolutely. Now, I knew Keith Oberman was leaving, and I said, oh, yeah, yeah, know it well. And he goes, would you be interested in going to New York and being the New York City reporter, which means covering New York, Boston, Philly, D.C.? I mean, you're traveling. I'm covering the big events, the Preakness, NBA Finals, World Series, all these things. And Oberman was such a great reporter. I had never been to New York in my life. <laughs> I, I got there, and they had me stay at a, in a building, the Downtown Athletic Club, which was since demolished after 9-11. But I stayed for three months, and I... I really didn't leave a two block radius because I didn't know where to go. I wasn't getting on the subway. I knew nothing about New York other than I would go to work at the World Trade Center, which is where CNN broadcast from at the time. And then I would go back to the downtown athletic club. So it happened so quickly, but you got opportunities at CNN. And here I am not getting a job in Dayton. Six months later, I'm in New York City replacing Keith Oberman who I would eventually work with at ESPN. So a lot of luck uh, involved, but somehow I survived. And so then how did you make that transition to ESPN? How did that opportunity present itself? My contract was coming up. I didn't have an agent. Once again, very green. I had, (laughs) I, I kept thinking I couldn't get an agent. And I thought, well, okay. I think I was making Oh, gosh, I don't even know how much it was, but but it wasn't enough where it was going to change Ted Turner's bank account. And I, I remember wanting $10,000 raise and Bill McPhail, who hired me, offered me $5,000. Now, Bill started CBS Sports. Bill's used to negotiating. 
I'm not. I figure I asked for 10, you give me 10. And then he said, I'll give you five. So I called up ESPN that day. It was a Friday. And I only knew that John Walsh had come to Sports Center and he was changing Sports Center because he wanted it to resemble more of what we did at CNN. So I call John Walsh, get him on the phone. It's a Friday. He says, you can come up Monday. I go up Monday. Don't negotiate. Still don't have an agent. And then I go, I have to tell CNN that I'm leaving. I had to tell Bill McPhail I was leaving. And he never spoke to me again after that. Mm. He didn't realize that I didn't realize this is part of negotiations. I just thought you didn't want me. If I asked for 10000 and you gave me 5000 then you didn't want me. Right. And I felt horrible about that because he was a gracious man and he took a chance on me. But I got to ESPN and I just thought, I go back to 1979. I'm in a sleeping bag in my off-campus house at the University of Dayton in no heat. And now I'm here. So this was 1989, right? Yeah. And you've now left um, New York City for Bristol, Connecticut. Yeah. Which is not New York or not even Dayton, actually, right? No, no. So where was ESPN in those days? And it's not exactly like the ESPN we know today. Uh, and certainly Sports Center had yet to become a thing. So yeah. t- tell us about uh, getting to uh, Bristol in 1989. I didn't care where I was working, but I was married. And if I was single in Bristol, then I could see where that would be a problem because you're trying to find some place to go when you're not working. But I I didn't worry about that. Plus, it was so exciting at the time because we knew we had sort of something there. We just didn't know what it was. But I got to do an hour of sports every night. I got to write the sports. I got to read the sports. I got to do interviews. I got to go to events and... I think there was, it wasn't as corporate back then. And there was a sense of, we can kind of have fun. You can, you can color outside the lines a little bit, have fun without, you know, without Chris Berman, Chris Berman and Dick Vitale, without them, we don't have ESPN because Dickie V in 1979, nobody knew who he was. He was a, a coach who had some success. Berman, nobody knew Chris other than, hey, that guy who's doing highlights at night and doing nicknames. But those guys stayed. And then you started to add the pieces to it. Then it became cool to go to ESPN. But the biggest thing that happened was the Big East because it gave us a lead-in to Sports Center. You had the Big East with Syracuse and Georgetown and St. John. Oh, my God, that I love that. But we were so fortunate to have that that – you have a lead in and then people would watch the game and then they would stay for sports center. And we really took advantage of that. And then we came out with the commercials, the, this is sports center promotion campaign. So it kind of came together and then management called me in one day and said, we're thinking of bringing in Keith Oberman. They had me sit down. So they go, you know, come on in, sit down. Steve Anderson was my boss. So go in, sit down. Now I think I'm in trouble. He goes, uh, sit down. Um, we're thinking about bringing in Keith Oberman. And I go, okay, do it. They go, are you sure? I go, yeah. Well, he can be difficult. I said, he's the most talented guy I've been around. I mean, yeah. They go, okay. I said, is that it? And they go, yeah. I go, okay. Walked outside. (laughs) Next thing I know, Oberman is there a couple of weeks later. And we had a ball. We had a ball for five, over five years. And 
once again, you know, you're, you're saying, okay, this happened, then that happened, that happened. You know, it, it's not a coincidence. You know, the, these things happen and there's something or somebody who made all those things happen. And, uh, you know, to replace him in New York, then to go to Bristol for him to come in and be my co-anchor. And we were lucky. We were lucky. But we got those opportunities. Management gave us those opportunities. On a personal level, how well did you know Keith before you guys became co-hosts? And as co-hosts, what was it like trying to develop that chemistry? Or was it very We never natural? discussed it, ever. Mm -hmm. We would talk, but not a lot during the evening because you had to write all of your, you had to write your show. And Keith could write an entire show in 30 minutes. I love the process. It would take me hours, but I, I love the process. And we would talk when we're putting on our own makeup because they didn't, they didn't hire a makeup person for years. So Keith and I, who had no <laughs> experience putting on makeup, I borrowed it from my wife. We're in the bathroom at usually around 10.30, putting on makeup. Then we would talk. Then we would go down and do Sports Center at 11 o'clock. But we never kind of looked back or after discussed philosophy, methodology, anything like that. We just did it. We tried to entertain each other. We wrote for each other. We did highlights for each other because if he reacted, then I thought the audience would react or the camera people. Because there's only four or five people in that room, but you're broadcasting to millions of people. We just hit the ground running. And plus what I, I understood about Keith was he was fearless. If he was right, then he was right. And he wasn't afraid of anybody. Management. And he took on management. And he kind of emboldened me. And he took me out of this, stop being a broadcaster. Why don't you be yourself on the air? But I'd come from CNN where CNN was supposed to be the most important thing. That was the product to ESPN where we were becoming the product. And I think Keith kind of pulled me out of that shell. We didn't socialize much at all. Uh, he was single. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I thought it was best that we always had that, I don't know, Hey, good to talk to you. Looking forward to talking to you when I would see him. And it's not that we went out to dinner over the weekends or anything like that. It was, it was a working relationship, but I think there was respect with who we were as people. Uh, and that continues to this day. Yeah. And the show show blew up pretty quickly. You guys really became sort of must-see cable TV in those days. How fast do you remember that happening and how did you get a sense that you guys were actually as the uh young there were kids a couple might say, of things because up. you're in bristol connecticut we were cordoned off to the rest of the world we had no idea who was watching they didn't tell us ratings we didn't know if we were popular but we would occasionally get reaction back i remember um jerry seinfeld somehow ran into jerry seinfeld he said uh hey i use one of your catchphrases when i leave the set and I was like, what? And Bill Murray got me an orange tie one time. We were in the city and I met Bill Murray and he went to the antique boutique in the village and he bought me an orange tie. He went in, we were on a pub crawl and Bill joined us. He goes, hold on, goes in, gets me a tie. Comes out and he goes, here. I said, what's this for? He said, well, didn't you say when Kevin O'Neill got the job at Tennessee, the hardest part of his job or one of the hardest things would be finding ties of that color 
with you know the Tennessee or I go holy like I then I, then you started to realize you know we had become part of the landscape here then you started meeting these athletes then you got sort of the feedback then we had the commercials so it it happened so quickly and then you kind of came up for air because I didn't know if it was changing me or not and and it probably was but I wanted to make sure that I stayed smart stayed grounded but man, we were full of ourselves because <laughs> I remember I mean, we were, we were, and some of it was allowed or warranted. I remember when somebody said, uh, Hey, Lauren Michaels, considering you and Keith to co-host Saturday night live. Now you would think that you'd go, Oh my God. And our reaction was okay. <laughs> like That doesn't make sense. That doesn't compute. Whether it was real or not, we had gotten word about that. And so you sort of went into these conversations with people that, hey, you know who we are. Mm-hmm. We were on the cover of TV Guide, and it said uh, top 10 shows to watch. And all of a sudden, it's Keith and I, and we're going, holy shit. Like, what's going on Now, here? that became a little bit of an issue for your bosses, right? You guys got yeah. so big, yeah. you, you sort of became bigger than the brand to a certain degree, right? Yes, they pulled us aside. We, we had a coming to Jesus meeting one time. And I always say, whenever there's an abundance of wood paneling in a room and it's on the ceiling, like, you know, you're in trouble if there's, you know, more wood there. So we went into this conference room and it's all wood, floor to ceiling. And I went, man, we're in trouble. Bosses come in. It's Keith, myself, and our producer, Mike McQuaid. And our boss at the time, Bob Eaton, started banging on the desk that he's not going to put up with this anymore. We were calling ourselves the big show. Well, the reason why we did that is Keith thought, let's have fun. Let's mock the fact that we don't know who's watching us. So we're calling ourselves the big show, not knowing who the hell's watching us. And management yelled at us, like truly yelled at us. You will not call it the big show. You will say, this is SportsCenter. We walk out. I got three kids at the time. And I go, oh, my God. And Keith goes, bleep them. I go, what? He goes, yeah, bleep them. I said, well, yeah. He goes, yeah, yeah. And I went, yeah, bleep them. <laughs> and I'm going, you know. I'm not believing it. I'm saying it because Keith is saying that. And that night, whenever we would go to commercial break, we would say, coming up, we'll have highlights of, and then blah, 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 blah. This is SportsCenter. We'd scream it. <laughs> and so management, you want this as SportsCenter? You got it. So we, we would say that so over the top. And then they started the ad campaign called This Is Sports Center that was based off of that. So, and Keith, Keith would, he would make fun of our bosses. One of my bosses would walk out of his office while we're writing our shows and he'd go, hello. And Keith, one night, there was a ball that went through somebody's legs, Jerry Dubzinski of the Cleveland Indians. And he goes, And I'm going, oh, my God, we're making fun of our bosses now. (laughs) But we there was an Eddie Haskell leave it to Beaver feel that we would show up at the door and say, hello, Mr. and Mrs. Cleaver. But once we got into 
you know, got up to Wally's room, you know, we were being nefarious. We wanted to push the envelope there. And, you know, you just kind of hold on for dear life because it, it was, it was a whirlwind. How much input uh, did you have, or you and Keith have um, over time in terms of like the editorial bent of sports center and, and what stories to cover or not to cover or what made it to the top of the show? Yeah. Um, I think both coming from CNN and having, you know, reporter skills, journalistic skills, sources, they really trusted us. And I think that the the biggest night, the night I think ESPN changed from being a highlight show to being a full sports show, Mickey Mantle died. And Keith was from New York and a big Mickey Mantle fan. My father loved Mickey Mantle. And you're trying to convey to an audience who Mickey Mantle was. Like, why do you care about this person? And we said to management, we need to do the first 15 minutes of the show on the passing of Mickey Mantle. And there was a little pushback and we held firm and we said, no, you can't do Mickey Mantle and then go to Mariner highlights. Like you just can't, you gotta do Mickey Mantle. He stands alone. It's his own segment. And they acquiesced and we did the right thing. But that was the night I think we went, we became more than just, we show highlights. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, since then, I think probably when anybody as notable has died in sports, ESPN and the sports world has kind of taken notice and and prioritized it, you know, as if it were, you know, the front page of the New York Times and a, and a president passing, which for sports well, fans is, you know, uh, somewhat analogous, I would think. And that's what John Walsh brought to SportsCenter, because when I was at CNN, you would do the, all the baseball highlights, then all the hockey highlights. Well, John Walsh said... No, the first 15 minutes should be the front page of the New York Times. But there's sports, you know, topics. So it could be this over here with a hockey fight. It could be this over here with an unbelievable basketball game. It could be this with a labor dispute. You have all of those stories in the first 12 minutes of the show. And then after that, here's all the baseball highlights. Here's all the, you know, hockey highlights. But let's give you the top stories when you tune in it's as if you're picking up a sports page right. and saying, you know, you don't just have here's a baseball story and then every baseball box score after that. It's a baseball story. It could be a football story. And John brought that to Sports Center and really changed. And another thing, Steve Bornstein, former president, I remember when he said, hey, I'm thinking about re airing Sports Center. We did the Sunday night Sports Center. And then it would re-air all morning long. And I'm thinking, who is going to watch SportsCenter at 7 in the morning? And I'll be damned. So those who couldn't stay up could get up at 7 in the morning, and they could watch what their dad watched. And, and what he did is he kept the cycle going. It was brilliant. Right. And, and, and what he's saying is, you're not going to miss anything. If you can't stay up late at night, We'll bring the show to you. And then later I found out, you know, guys would watch at seven in the morning. Then they'd watch at eight o'clock in the morning because they knew what we were going to say. And then they would act like they were doing sports center because they knew the lines there. You know, it, it was, 
there are a lot of really sharp people that I worked with, and that was evident. Sports there. Center was a real um, influence and inspiration for Comedy Central's The Daily Show. And not only, you know, we, we wanted quote our own Sports Center, which is why we created The Daily Show. And on top of that, we did we would do the same thing, which we aped from ESPN, which is you know was on at eleven o'clock every night, and then we would run it all morning. Uh, the rerun. And, uh, and of course, you know, didn't get as many people to watch, but people watched all day. And we sort of stole that from ESPN as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and but it was all sort of experimental, but I just remember when he said that, I thought he was crazy that is somebody going to watch the rear? Well, if everything's done, then it's a fresh show to you at seven in the morning as it was at midnight the night exactly. before. I mean, that was, this is an era before DVRs and people really were using VHSs to tape shows. And, and if you missed whatever it was, sports center, David Letterman, the daily show, you missed it. These, these cable networks particularly would rerun stuff all day and you'd get a chance to sort of catch up and it helped really build the audience. Yeah, it did. And also I think the interest as you were just describing in rewatching things, I mean, it underlines that people were coming to Sports Center to get sports news and to find out the scores and see highlights. But it also became about your personalities and and wanting to spend time with you as hosts. And I know at some point that maybe caused some some issues within the workplace, right? Yeah, there was a lot of competition, and uh, for the most part, it was healthy competition. But when you got recognition, then somebody else wanted recognition or you got a raise or I didn't care what anybody made. Oberman made more than I did. I didn't care. Berman made more. I didn't care. I don't know what Bob Lee made. I didn't care. I truly didn't because if I did, then I was losing sight of what I wanted to be paid fairly. And, and my negotiations were always pay me what you think I deserve. And it would flummox management because they're like, uh, I, I don't know what you're worth because they would deal with an agent normally. And I went in and I just said, just you pay me what you think I'm worth. And did I leave money on the table? Yes, I did. But I just wanted to work there. I didn't want to work there because I wanted to get rich. I wanted to get great at sports casting. Mm -hmm. And I, for some reason, I didn't want to chase the dollar and I didn't want to leave ESPN. I had opportunities to go to CBS and NBC. And I was like, but I don't want to go. And then I had a friend who said, no, you got to play the game. You got to act like you want to go. Dan, how did you uh, come to the decision to finally leave ESPN? I wanted to do my radio show at home one day a week. So I had four kids and they were nine through 15. And uh, I just wasn't seeing them. I'd work at night. And during the week, I didn't get to see them. And I thought, you know, if I do my radio show from home on Friday when I didn't do SportsCenter... Then I'd have Friday and Saturday to be able to be at home and help my wife. And I said to management, I want to do my show at home. They said, no, it's precedent setting. I said, well, how about I do my show from my home studio? You tell me if you can tell the difference. Well, they couldn't tell the difference. But they said, it's bad. You're good for morale that I would be in the studio. I'd be at ESPN. So that became sort of the punchline. It's like, hey, hey, Mr. Morale is here. Like, I'm going to lift everybody's spirits here. And I was going to sign a new five-year contract. And uh, that morning, I'm talking to my wife, and I'm sort of listening to her, but I'm not. And she goes, are you going to sign that deal? I said, yeah, yeah, I'm going to sign the deal. And uh, she goes, you know, the kids are going to be out of the house. Like, when you're done with this deal, the kids will be out of the house. And you're going to feel terrible. 
And I'm going, yeah, you know, like I'm not listening. I'm going, no, I'm, I'm a sign of five-year deal at ESPN. I mean, the I'm, kids are going to love me. All you know, whatever. I drive. It's 55 minutes from my house to ESPN. I get there, walk in, go upstairs, say hello to Danielle, the secretary. Walk in, sit down with my boss. And he said, all right, you're going to take it or leave it. And I pause. I said, I'm going to leave it. And he didn't even hear me. He said, what? I said, I, I'm going to leave it. He goes, okay. And I walked downstairs. I walked down outside. It's beautiful, sunny, blue skies. I called my wife. I said, hon, I'm coming home. She goes, okay. I said, no, I'm, I'm coming home. She goes, okay. I said, hon, I'm going to quit ESPN. She goes, we'll sell the house if we have to. Oh, started crying, falling. I'm a mess. Because she had the perspective, because I have three daughters. They were, you know, 9, 11, and 13 at the time. My son's 15. She was like, you're going you're gonna to hate yourself that you're not, not around them. Thank God. Thank God I listened to her. Because she's right. You have to be there with girls. You know, they need to see that. And not that my son didn't, but in my mind, I, hey, I'm a sports center anchor. Like, I'm a sports center anchor first, not a husband and father. Like, you know, how stupid is that? When I, you know, people say, oh, you know, you left because you were going to get more money or whatever. Everybody said, you're crazy. Nobody leaves ESPN. They tell you to leave. But I remember sitting at home the first six months and it's just me and the dog because everybody else is in school or doing all the other things. And I said, I just made the biggest mistake of my life. And my wife said, no, you didn't. You came home. You can never make a mistake coming home. And well, also, I just, 18 years, right, Dan? Yeah. I mean, you yeah. had pretty much done it, right? I just can't imagine there was a lot more left to say within that format for you. You know, I wasn't, I was going through the motions. I was not getting better. I think we were moving in different directions of what I wanted to do and what they wanted from somebody in my position. And everybody had left. Everybody I worked with, Fowler, Trico, Chris Myers, Keith Oberman, they're all gone. They're not doing sports center. And I, I looked around and I went, I'm an old man doing sports center. And I wasn't old at the time I was 50, but in my mind, I'm old. And I thought, God, I'm going to wake up one day and I'm going to be the punchline. And I thought, let me get my ass handed to me. Let me go out and try to build something. And I had somebody who was willing to take a chance on me and start a radio show and simulcast it and, you know, and we nearly went bankrupt, but, you know, we were doing the show out of my attic for three years. My guys would come into my house, my wife in her bathrobe, kids are out going, <laughs> getting yelled at, going out the door, and they go up to the attic and we do a three-hour national radio show. And my wife was thrilled. She didn't care. She loved it. I was home. And I would see the kids every single night at dinner and you know, it really, it didn't save my marriage or any of that. It's not that dramatic, but it really, it gave her the ultimate, this is the most important thing in my life, yeah. as opposed to, I always thought that what I was doing was the most important thing in my life. But I was just lucky. I was lucky she said that because I would have signed up for five years, five more years, and I probably would have been miserable. And, uh, Thank God I listened. I'm curious if you ever watch SportsCenter now. I would imagine that you do from time to time just because everybody does. And what, what it's like to watch it now and what you think 
like still is in the DNA of the show that was in the DNA from when you were doing it? Oh, it's not recognizable to it's me. It's not. Okay. No, no. And and I have friends who still work there. Scott Van Pelt is a friend. And I can watch them. It's weird. I can watch them without watching Sports Center, if that makes sense. Because I'm just watching them and their performance, not because Sports Center is now about these huge screens and I mean it's just there's so much there. Mm-hmm. And I try to watch the people I know. I listen for the, their highlights or their interviews. But for the most part, I'll watch Around the Horn and Pardon the Interruption just because it's different. Mm-hmm. You know, I want, I want some opinions. Always appreciated the writers and their opinions growing up. And I would gravitate towards that. Not as much SportsCenter, because we can get this information before SportsCenter. Right. Well, the world, is, right. the world has changed dramatically, right? Yeah. You used to have to watch SportsCenter to see yeah. the highlights. There was, you know, this is a pre-internet world. And right. that and, you know, the great hosts like yourself and Keith made it must-see TV. And now the world has kind of changed dramatically. Yeah, you can find out that information and I can find out somebody's opinion as well. Whereas it used to be you had to wait for Sports Center to see all these highlights. That's not the case anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. So our traditional last question for our guests is what is your favorite basic cable TV show of all time, excluding shows that you yourself have worked on? Oh gosh. What does basic cable consist of? Are you talking about when I was growing up? It could be any time. It could be growing up now, you know, somewhere in between. It's anything that's not network television and not like a Showtime HBO, like the real, you know, stuff on the basic dial. Oh, God, I don't know. I have no idea. I love to watch Maine Cabin Masters, but I don't know if that's considered <laughs> basic cable. Uh, is it? It probably is. What Do you know what network oh, it's on? I think that's DIY. Yeah, or- sure. Yeah, that's basic cable. Yeah. You know what? It's weird. You're going to find this so strange because I watched Maine Cabin Masters. I uh, ended up buying a piece of property in Maine. And then I, I want to build a piece of property up there. But I want to follow the Maine Cabin Masters around and watch them build houses. And then I would love to be able to des- design a piece of property. And I'm friends with Ryan, who's one of the uh, guys on Maine Cabin Masters. He thinks I'm crazy that I would want to go and actually help them, you know, when they film something, when they're not on camera, just to understand how to do it. I've always been fascinated with that. I can't do anything with cars, but I love watching shows about cars. I can't build anything, but I love watching people build things. Dan, if you buying property in Maine doesn't speak to the power of cable television, I don't know what does. Yeah. So, Dan Patrick, that was fun. It really reminds you of a day when Sports Center on ESPN was must see cable TV in a world before the internet. Yeah. I mean, there really wasn't a lot of different places to go and find highlights. Now you can just go on YouTube or whatever and find things pretty easily. But uh, at the time, that was kind of your go to resource. Yeah. And they, and they made a a real event out of it each night with their attitude, with their humor, with their chemistry. I mean, I think it really sort of set the stage a little bit for what sports reporting has become today. Absolutely. And one of the things I really appreciated that Dan was talking about that I think applies to really anybody, whether you work in basic cable or work in any job, is just this idea of that 
kind of nagging insecurity that I call imposter syndrome and that I think a lot of people call it that now. I love it when people talk about that because it just, I think everybody has it to varying degrees. And even people who are incredibly successful will still have a voice in their head saying, you're not doing this right. Somebody's going to notice you're not doing it right. And then that's the end of it for you. And um, I think it helps everybody when you realize that everybody is having that same issue. Everybody. I mean, I always felt that at every job I was ever at. I was always like, when are they going to figure out I'm a fraud? When are they going to figure out I can't really do this? When are they going to figure out I don't know what I'm doing? And that's what keeps you up at night. And at the same time, to a certain degree, I think that's what kind of motivates you, right? Every day to go out, you know, whether you did what I did or whether you're writing like you, you know, like you are, or you're in front of the TV camera every night like Dan Patrick was. Yeah. I also think it keeps you humble in a weird way. Um, because if you didn't have any self-doubt and you thought you could do absolutely anything, I think that's a, a dangerous attitude to have personally. Uh, I, yeah. He never, he doesn't strike me. He talked at one point about being a little full of themselves and, and, and sort of knowing that they had become stars and leveraging that a little bit with management. But he never really struck me as a cocky guy. He struck me as somebody who was really grateful always to have the opportunity to do what he's doing, including right up to this very day. Mm -hmm. One thing we didn't talk to him much about was um, when they launched ESPN2, uh, which from reading the ESPN book, like I, I don't remember that they wanted to launch it in part to appeal to a younger audience. Uh, maybe you remember all of that better than I do, but I like to me, ESPN2 is just another channel where I can watch a game. <laughs> like, I don't no, think yeah. it is. It... Yeah, that's, I, you know, I'd forgotten that as well, actually, Jen. It, you know, it was launched as like a fighting brand to sort of appeal to, you know, a slightly younger audience, almost like an MTV style sports network. And I remember like the whole idea of it kind of fell flat on its face. And it ultimately became just another platform to watch sports. Which I'm happy to have, by the way. <laughs> Can't have enough, um, can you? No. And to the point that you're making earlier about Sports Center not being must see TV in the same way that it once was, I do still think it is sort of like a default thing that you go to. Like we have it on in the house, you know, multiple times a week, either because we're watching games and it's in between games and Sports Center's on, or, or it's just kind of the way that I think, and I don't mean this in any other way than a compliment the way that people will sometimes have CNN on or, right. or something on is kind of like background noise. And then if they say something that's interesting to you, you pay attention, but it's just, it's, it's like a go-to. And I think that there is value to that. Um, having those kind of go-to almost comforting things um, that can be sort of background for you. Well, that was, I think, you know, part of the secret of cable television in general, these 24 hour services like CNN, like ESPN, you know, even MTV with music videos back in the day that were always there for you and were kind of in the kind of in the background. Um, I totally get that. You know, the news is always on in my house in the background. My wife watches it, but I no longer put ESPN on necessarily like that anymore. I get so much of my sports news and the highlights and everything from my phone. It's coming at me in real time. And so the idea of a destination uh, that uh, Sports Center was back in the 90s, you know, when Dan and, and Keith reigned supreme, that feels like a, a bygone era. Yeah, no, I definitely think it is a bygone era. But I will ask you, when you're getting those updates 
and alerts on your phone, where are they coming from? I bet a lot of them are coming from ESPN. Uh, they're to- they are they are they are mostly <laughs> coming from ESPN. And what I don't get, honestly, and what I do miss a little bit is, you know, the the humor, the chemistry, the the snarky, the attitude that those guys brought to it, which made it so special back then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they still have, as you know, like the the sort of sports talk shows that are more opinion driven. But they, guys screaming at each other all the time, yeah. Yes, <laughs> I, I call them the yelling shows. And, yeah, and exactly. they are definitely, um, I mean, at least in my memory, they're a little, they're more antagonistic in terms of how they're structured, like on purpose, right. than something like SportsCenter was back in the day. Right. So like, um, you know, they've gone to like sort of more opinion um, than highlights, which was their bread and butter back in the day. And now it's sort of these, you know, opinion shows where folks sort of, you know, yelling each other back and forth. And, you know, that's how they have a ball. You know, it's like the New York Times, you know, you, they don't really have a sports section anymore. And when you go to it, it's not really scores anymore because it's all old news by the time your paper, if you get a paper, shows up. And it's, it's a lot of um, features and opinion. Mm-hmm. Right, right. I still wish that there had been a network that was like ESPN, but was like that for entertainment. And not just like what MTV did, which was sort of a- What about specific, E? I mean, a serious network <laughs> <laughs> that take that that took it with the seriousness that, that ESPN took sports. Like I, I've never had, and please, if I'm forgetting a show, tell me. But I, I there was never a show on basic cable that really like sat down and had people talking about movies and television in a serious way that was also engaging. I think that's right. And I think, Jen, um, you've just landed on an idea for you and me to have our first basic cable show. Oh, wow, which we great. Get to work on, <laughs> which we could get to work on right now. We've already uh, got a spinoff. Amazing. We've already got a spinoff. Um, so stay tuned. And thanks, everybody, for joining us this time on Basic. And we will see you next time. Basic is a Pantheon media production in partnership with Sirius XM, hosted by Jen Cheney and Doug Herzog. Produced by Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli. Lindley Ehrlich is our assistant producer. Mixed, mastered, and music by Jerry Danielson. Edited by Zach Spisner. You can find Basic on Apple Podcasts, the SiriusXM app, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. If you like the show, please rate, review, and share so other people can find us. Don't Don't forget forget to follow the show so you never never miss an episode. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.